We're living in a time when the mission force has become global. And so any mission that doesn't work with that appreciation is missing the boat. And so the whole task of evangelizing the world becomes a possibility. Hello and welcome to First Person and a conversation with Patrick Johnstone, the original author of Operation World, which for many years has served as the definitive prayer guide for the nations. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and you'll meet Patrick in just a moment. These conversations are made possible by the Far East Broadcasting Company, which works in nearly 50 countries of the world to make God's love known through radio and other media. Take a few moments to learn more about FEBC by visiting our website, firstpersoninterview.com. There you can explore the audio archive and view the schedule of upcoming guests, firstpersoninterview.com or facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Well, visiting the U.S. from his home in England, Patrick Johnstone came to the First Person Studio a few days ago. I wanted to talk with this man who started publishing Operation World as a booklet in the 1960s. Now in its seventh edition by others who have picked up the mantle, this book has been used to stir prayer and missions like no other. And as we talked, I asked Patrick to begin with his own story. God actually spoke to me before I was a Christian about serving him in Africa, and that scared me. I was a teenager at the time. But then, just after I'd finished high school, we went on holiday as a family to Cornwall in the southwest of England, and we saw my father, father drown in the sea. Oh. And that was a huge shock. Mm. And it really caused me to start questioning a lot of things. And shortly after that, I went to university. And there someone met me who was a true believer. He'd been to the same school that I had been at. And he saw me and recognized me. And he led me to Christ. And he got me involved with the... Christian Union, as we called it, the IVCF group. He pushed me in into Christian ministry and so on uh, as a student. And so he was a wonderful discipler. And that's what got me on the road of being a Christian. It's always fascinating to hear how Christ calls people. In your case, though, I want to take you back to what you said. You said Christ began to work on your heart about Africa even before you were a Christian. How can that be? I don't know. But uh, there are a few times in my life when God has actually spoken to me. Mm. Whether it was an audible voice inside me or ex- externally, I don't know. Those are powerful experiences. Yes, and that lived with me. Mm. But when I became a true Christian, um, that sort of was still there. And then someone came to our university Christian union and spoke about work in the slums of southern Africa. Mm. And that's when God spoke to me, that is where I want you to go. And that's where you went. And that is where I went. Tell me about South Africa and that part of your life. That was quite an experience. Um, I was one of the first plain missionaries. I went out to Africa in 1962, um, just with the independence rush of countries of that time, and not realizing the significance of it, really. But I went to South Africa still at the height of apartheid with all the challenges and problems that this brought about, going with my African co-workers to try and get their pass book stamped to preach in a new town. Mm -hmm. It was 
Not easy. Hmm. Now, your mother was Dutch, right? Yes. Did that have any impact on South Africa for you? None at all. Okay. It gave me a sort of one foot on the rung of the ladder to learn the Afrikaans language. All right. That is about all. And um, but I feel I've also benefited by the fact that I have a multicultural parent yeah. uh, pair, yeah. and it just helps you to adapt. Yeah. But uh, in South Africa, we worked in these slum areas. Uh, many were who came to Jesus came from terrible backgrounds. Mm. So my own team that. I gradually built up in Zimbabwe, where I eventually went to work, or it was then Rhodesia. And to see them sort of get through all their hang-ups, you know, after they'd done their Bible training, but all their hang-ups and get freed up in Jesus to become effective servants of God. And some of them went on to become great leaders in Mm. Africa. South Africa was such a divided country at that time with apartheid. What it was. What impact did that have on your ministry and how you went about doing uh, God's work there? You go into a situation as a stranger. You're always a guest. So you have to respect the laws that are there and you sort of conform to certain things that you later regret. But there was a huge paternalism in Christian work as well. Mm. And, um, oh, these Africans, they can't lead. They're like children. We must look after them. That's, type of thing. that's the, the reigning thought of the day, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. And I, when I went up to Zimbabwe, I drew up a 10-year plan uh, for myself that I wanted to ha- have my African co-workers doing everything I did uh, within 10 years and to take over. And that was not mission policy. Hmm. It wasn't thought of. But wonderfully, the leader of the mission, he supported me, and it worked. Mm -hmm. You've been involved with WEC International all these years. Let's explain what that is. Well, my time in Africa was with another mission, Okay. um, which I need to just explain. Uh, One of the visions of that little Dorothea mission was prayer Uh. and holding weeks of prayer for the world. Okay. And I began to gather information to help African Christians pray for the world. I know where this is leading. That that yeah. takes us right to Operation World, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. But then it was through Operation World and doing it that in, in Rhodesia, as it then was, there were sanctions imposed on the country by most countries and postal services were cut. So I couldn't even write to countries for information. I had to go through um, others. And one of my key post people was one of the leaders in WEC. And that brought the link with WEC. And when Leslie Brierley, my predecessor in the strategy research aspect of the mission, was uh, needing to retire, he could not find anyone in WEC who was uh, ready and willing to take on his role. And so we were invited to become part of WEC. Hmm. In 1977, Operation World, of course, has been one of the uh, huge catalysts for prayer for the nations. But when you started compiling that information, that was pre-internet. Yes. How did you go about finding out all the details that you have constantly updated in Operation World? Well, as I indicated, with great difficulty. (laughs) And um, yeah, well, the other problem was that nobody else had done anything like it before. Mm. And in fact, the only book I had that was global in coverage was one of the 
World Christian Handbooks of 1967, which produced statistics, some statistics, on most of the countries of the world. And that's all I had. And I had to compile it from a network of informants that I tried to build up from Africa. But eventually we produced it. Mm. And it went global because both Ralph Winter... Well, we had the problem that we printed the book on our mission press in Pretoria, South Africa, and then found we were not legally allowed to sell the book because it was not printed by union members oh, in a print shop. Uh-huh. And so we had to give them away. And I gave a copy to Ralph Winter and to George Verver, and it exploded. <laughs> yeah, those are two movers and shakers exactly. in the kingdom, aren't they? And yeah. so George Verver <laughs> wrote to me and said, Patrick, if you... revise this because this was several years later if you revise this we'll take it on Hmm. and they did and it went global and as far as I know as far as best I can calculate probably two and a half million copies have been distributed amazing but it it started as a means of of, uh, encouraging prayer for the nations that's how it started and that's what's happened all these years hasn't it that's right what are some of your favorite stories about how God has used Operation (laughs) I know you could probably have a a truckload of them, but... Yes. My next ambition is to write a book on the story of Operation Oh, good. But I want to do it in two uh, ways. The human story on the uh, right-hand page and on the left-hand page quotes from earlier editions of Operation World what people prayed for and how God answered. And it's uh, amazing. Excellent. I'll be first in line to buy that book. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And, well, lovely things. Um, uh, For instance, um, I just remember landing in Dakar in Senegal to visit some of our WEC fields there. And we traveled on a little New Tribes mission plane to land in Dakar and waiting to fly south again were two Brazilian missionaries. And one of them came up and gave me a big Brazilian abraço and embrace. And he said, I'm so glad to see you, he said. I'm here because of you. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, you spoke in a conference in Sao Paulo in Brazil on, and you mentioned Senegal, and that's why I'm here. And the other guy said, oh, you wrote that book, did you? That's why I'm here. <laughs> you must have heard that. Hundreds of times. Yes, I have. It's amazing how yes. God has used Operation World all these years. Yes. Um, the research continues. This book is uh, still in print. Are you still working on Operation World? No, I've done the apostolic thing and handed over. Oh, okay. I believe the work of an apostle is always to hand over, not yeah. to stay. Yeah. And, um, and there are online editions or electronic editions of it now as well. Yes. And so, um, basically, I worked with Jason Mandrick uh, on the 2001 edition, and he did some of the countries. I did most of them, but I was preparing him for handover. Mm. Was that hard to do? No, because it's become so part of my whole ministry pattern. I've always got to prepare people to hand over. Mm. I mean, Jesus told us... um, in Matthew 28 um, about discipling. In fact, one of the problems is that that verse is badly translated. It's not go and make disciples, the emphasis on the go. It's ingoing disciple. Mm -hmm. Everything we do is to help others to take over. And if we don't do that, 
we're not following Paul's principle, what you've heard from me before, many witnesses, teach to other men, who are faithful men who will teach others also. This whole idea of pass on. So it wasn't hard to hand over. There's more we can learn from the life of Patrick Johnstone and we'll get to it next here on First Person. This is Ed Cannon, president of the Far East Broadcasting Company. FEBC partners with First Person to bring these interviews to you each week because we never tire of hearing how God moves on the hearts of people to accomplish His purpose, whether in the hard-to-reach places of the world or right here at home. We serve a living God who leads men and women to do great things for Him. Learn more about FEBC at firstpersoninterview.com. Click on the FEBC banner. My guest is none other than Patrick Johnstone, who uh, many years ago wrote the book Operation World that has been such a such an encourager in prayer for the nations. Um, I don't know if anybody could have predicted what would happen with Operation World, but it, it, I mean, you unmistakably were following what God wanted you to do. Yes. And um, it's very hard to understand the dynamics of it all. It just seemed to be God's time and God's means. Mm. And one of the huge results of, of it has been that it's really provided the information the rest of the world needed to become part of the mission force. So um, the growth of Operation World has um, really mirrored the growth in the number of Asian, African, and Latin American missionaries. I want to talk to you about the global church in a moment, but let me take you back. A few moments ago, you were talking about the importance of discipling. This really characterizes your life, doesn't it? This is, isn't this what you're all about? Isn't this your call to disciple people? It is, and I strongly believe that. And so everything I believe anybody does in ministry must be with the goal of handover. Don't do anything that can't be replicated by those you're working with. Mm. You've seen great changes in missions in your lifetime. Uh, what are some of those changes, and are we moving in the right direction toward discipleship? Well, one of the big changes is the composition of the mission force in the world. And uh, basically, when I went out to Africa, 90% of all missionaries were Western. Now the majority are non-Western. And so you've seen that huge switch. I think that surprises many North Americans to hear. Say that again. The majority of the missionary workforce? Is now um, Asian, African, and Latin American. And so we see that massive change. Um, just a, a year and a half ago, I was in Northeast India on a recruitment tour in, amongst the, uh, sta- in the states of Northeast India. And I was doing a five-week tour of Nagaland, Meghalaya, and... Um, uh, again, I forgot if I... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, um, of Nagaland, Meghalaya, and Manipur. And to be amongst 10 million evangelical Christians... By the way, those are all household names, of course, those countries. <laughs> yes. None of us could put them on a map, probably. No. And they're, they're actually Indian, but they're more Southeast Asian or Tibetan-related. Okay. But God worked in a powerful way there over these hundred years. And with revival after revival, the Mizo, for instance, are number one million people, and they've sent out 2,000 missionaries. Mm. Mm. 
And I mean, we're living in a time when uh, the mission force has become global. And so any mission that doesn't work with that appreciation is missing the boat. It's a good thing, isn't it? Yes. So it's from everywhere to everywhere now. And so the whole task of evangelizing the world becomes a possibility. What have you seen change in terms of the missionary themselves? Um, there used to be a vocation missionary. Now missionary is sort of a avocation, isn't it? Yes. Um, it's good and bad because basically you cannot get away from it. But unless you are embedded in a culture for seven or eight years, you don't really get to the heart of the culture that you want to see affected. Mm. There are useful things you can do, but it does take time. And in the West, it's become too much a short-term mentality. Mm -hmm. Short-term so, missions has its place in terms certainly of does. introducing people, but yeah. to do the real work of discipling, as you have been called to do, yeah, takes time, right. doesn't it? It does take time. Yeah. And that is what makes me uneasy about the present emphasis on church planting movements. Mm. Um, I believe that God is working in powerful ways in certain countries like China, uh, Iran, North Africa, with huge movements of people to Christ. But there are special conditions when that kind of growth condition occurs. But in most areas, it's slog, hard slog, and small beginnings that might ultimately lead in breakthrough. And to expect that kind of growth in every place doesn't happen that way. I believe we're transitioning to what you've written about in your book, The Future of the Global Church, mm -hmm. where you study the past, the present, and the possible future yes. of the church. Talk more about what you see ahead <laughs> globally for us. Well, first, we are in the middle of a refugee crisis. Um, and what people have now become aware of is the massive movement of populations that is actually going to be part of our story for the next 40 years. Mm -hmm. Thereafter, the population growth of the world is going to uh, slow down immensely. It is already. And the pressures for people to move or to find new space are not going to be so great. We're in the midst of that now and may not even realize how... No how uh, much of an earthquake it is, really, isn't it? Well, I spoke at a conference of missions uh, uh, last month on uh, missions amongst refugees, and they called the title of the conference After the Flood. And I said to them, um, it's after the flood, but there's no rainbow at the end of this flood mm. and a promise that it'll not happen again. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think we're going to see this as a pattern over the next 40 years. And one of the reasons, actually, is we've been so good at eliminating poverty. The level of poverty in the world has greatly decreased. The middle class has, has been and, on the rise, hasn't it? Yes, well, yeah. not only that, but people yeah. have got enough money to think wider. And so it's not just people fleeing uh, challenge difficulties, but they're fleeing for a better life just like many who settled in North America a mm. century ago. And they have the wherewithal to move and pay the people smugglers, which they didn't have on the same, measure, uh, same level a few years ago. Mm. So how does the church respond? With fear. Mm. 
too much. And sadly, when we had the post-war rush of people from all over the world to Europe and to the States, we often missed the opportunities. Mm -hmm. I know in Britain we've got huge areas which have become largely Muslim and they've entrenched themselves in a self-protective uh, ghetto almost, which makes it very difficult to reach. But we are seeing such enormous results in the present wave where Christians are active. So you mean that we're responding in fear, which means we're pulling back yes. away from meeting the challenge. Yes. What do we need to do instead? We need to firstly see the human side of the story. Um, you know, once you meet refugees and f hear their horrendous stories, they're often horrendous stories, um, it changes our attitude to individuals. And I think we as Christians, we may not be able to do much to change government policy, but we can do a lot to change the lives of those we, with whom we can have contact. Mm. And in the church fellowship of which I'm part in the city of Derby in England, we now have, we have a congregation of seven to 900 people, but about a quarter of them are ex-Muslims. And they've been welcomed and come to Christ. I have a friend uh, I spoke with recently that described this as a golden age of Muslims coming to Christ. Do you agree with that? I do, certainly. In fact, recently I wrote an article with another guy and uh, using figures that we'd started to put together in the future of the global church. And really, since the start of the rise of extreme Islam, that has been paralleled by an increasing flow of people out of Islam to trust in Jesus. Mm. I would reckon that in 1960, there may have been no more than 60,000 people who were former Muslims, now Christian. Today, it's about 10 million. Mm. Patrick, I spoke with George Verwer recently, and I asked him this question, what keeps him going? Can I ask you that question? What, what you keeps can. you going? Well, George and I, we're just a few months apart. He's three months older than I am. And uh, what keeps me going is the thrill of seeing God working in the world today. Mm. We're living in an amazing time. We're so privileged. And I believe we're going to see lots more in the next uh, decade or so. You've been following Christ for decades. Any, any regrets along the way? I suppose more about me not being more uh, enthusiastic for my Lord Jesus than I am, mm. but I mean, no regrets at all. Mm -hmm. I was trained as a research scientist. I'm <laughs> glad I went the route I did. And we are especially glad. What an honor to have Patrick Johnstone here on First Person. His latest efforts have been to write the book, The Future of the Global Church, and you'll find links to this book as well as Operation World on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Extremely active in missions today, Patrick makes his home in the UK. He and his wife served with WEC International, a pioneer church planting ministry. As always, thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company for making these weekly conversations possible. You can learn much more about FEBC by visiting firstpersoninterview.com and click on the banner for FEBC, firstpersoninterview.com. Next time, our guest will be Dr. Billy Kim from South Korea, who will talk about God moving in his life in some extremely unique ways, starting when he was a teenager. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Listen next time for First Person. <laughs>